0: This is David Rovix and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55am Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do and everything can change.
1: Welcome to the Climate Action Radio Show, which can be heard on community radio 3CR in Melbourne and Skid Row in Sydney. My name is Vivian Langford, and salut, Babette. We'd like to pay our respects to elders, past and present, and pay tribute to the decades-long legacy of Aboriginal fights for land rights and against the destructive mining projects that are fueling climate change. In particular, we acknowledge the Wangan and Jagalingu cultural custodians and their ongoing opposition to coal mining. On their lands in central Queensland, and to the Gomeroy traditional custodians continuing opposition to coal and gas on their land in New South Wales. It is vital at this late stage in history that we all learn to care for country. It will always be Aboriginal land, and now is our time to all stand up for and protect it. This is humanity's moment according to IPCC scientist and author Joelle Gurgis. And it's the name of her new book, Humanities Moment. And today, the latest IPCC report has arrived from the United Nations. The UN Secretary General, Antonio Gutierrez, says we must do, what? Everything, everywhere and all at once. In the Australian Parliament and media, there is a brave battle going on right now between two pragmatisms. Labour wants to pass its safeguards mechanism bill to cut Australia's domestic emissions. Well, that's politically pragmatic in the local context, but does nothing about our continued export of coal and gas. The Greens have one condition before passing the bill. No new coal or gas project. This is pragmatic in the global and scientific context. Which one will you get behind? Here are some key points from the new United Nations Climate Change Report. It's been translated into plain English by a group called Covering Climate Now. They are set up exactly to help journalists get a much more sophisticated take on the climate discussion. It's not very sophisticated in in Australia, is it? pitting the Greens and the Labour as if the climate change is not the main subject behind all of this. Here are the headlines in plain English. One, people are starving now because of climate chaos. Two, global temperatures will stop rising if we slash heat trapping emissions now. Three, the world has plenty of money but Global North countries and institutions must quickly start financing the transition away from coal, oil and gas. Four, if we make deep, rapid and sustained reductions in greenhouse gas emissions now, we will see a slowdown of global heating within two decades. That's within my hopeful lifetime. How long will you, how old will you be in two decades? How old will your children be in two decades? It's something I think we've lost sight of, that this is actually possible if we make those extreme and rapid and radical actions, not pussyfooting about what's politically pragmatic at the moment. Five, climate survival demands swift phasing out of all coal, oil and gas burning. Meanwhile, the business plans of ExxonMobil and other companies indicate that they fully intend to produce fossil fuels for decades to come. So I ask, what can Australians do about these so-called Scope 3 emissions? That's the emissions that we export in our profit-making coal, oil and gas. My opinion is that they will continue exporting until governments find it politically unimaginable to go on approving new coal and gas projects and go on subsidising them with huge amounts of money every year. If we make this an emergency on the streets like the French are doing right now over their pensions, the new pragmatism will be to ban and phase out what is fueling the climate time bomb. There are also alternatives such as suggested by Tim Buckley to make the scope 3, or exported emissions, part of a separate bill. He says pass the safeguard mechanisms, amend it, but pass it, and then get on with a separate bill to control the exported emissions and phase them out. But we'll leave that to another show. Now we'll hear Joel Gurgis in conversation with two leaders from Psychologists for a Safe Climate. That's Christy Wilson and Charles Lefervre. This is an edited form of a longer talk.
2: So I guess as a young person growing up in a country like Australia, you know, we had my childhood, I guess, was punctuated by these extreme weather events. And I remember there was a a really severe bushfire season in 1994 and I was a high school student and I remember seeing, you know, bushfire ash just floating through my neighbourhood and it was terrifying. And it was one of those things that I guess as as a a child that was um, really interested in, in the natural world and also interested in science, I wanted to understand how the Australian climate works. And I guess that curiosity led me to go on, to study um, science at university, and I guess I've had, well, the rest is history in many ways, but I guess it comes, it stemmed from wanting to understand, well, what is it that makes Australia so erratic in terms of our weather extremes and wanting to understand more about how the planet worked? Uh, But it was also that that love for the natural world. I I love natural places. I love the ocean, uh, the bush, things like that and i wanted to see how i could i guess shape my life into trying to do what i can i suppose as a privileged person in a country like australia as an educated person to do what i can so i suppose my my curiosity came about from my from growing up in australia just like many people i guess and wanting to understand more
0: mm. oh well thanks very much it's uh... Yeah, it's interesting that you you had your that early contact with uh, with climate change as well. And uh, look, let's really get into the hard stuff now because um, uh, you you obviously had years of experience now in the whole climate science area and with the IPCC. And um, one of the things which we really it's really important for us in PSC is to really be aware of the climate reality. So I'm just wondering if you can, I guess, uh, I know it's a big ask, but tell us uh, how you see the current climate reality, if you like, and also what you think we need to urgently do.
2: Yeah, sure. So I guess anyone who's been living in Australia for the last few years has experienced some of the extreme weather events that we've had. So Black summer, I think, in, in 2019, 2020, was a, a real pivotal moment in, in, our, in our history. Uh, you know, in that particular uh, bushfire season, we saw about 25% of Australia's temperate forest burn in a single bushfire season. During a you know an extreme event, uh, extreme bushfire season, maybe 2% might burn. So we're talking orders of magnitude um, greater than what we would expect just from a sort of background historical conditions. And after those fires, um, our most iconic species, the koala, is now an endangered species along the east coast of this country. Now, that's something that is a, a pretty confronting reality to come to terms with when you stop and think about what that means as an Australian. We're actually seeing ecosystems starting to collapse and come apart. On our watch. So, you know, sometimes when we talk about climate change, we think about these things as these very distant, far away 2030, 2040, 2050, 2100. But in fact, what was really confronting to me as a scientist that was working on the IPCC report at the time is that you can have really abrupt change happen very quickly in the space of just a season. So, in the space of just one single summer season or bushfire season, really, we saw the Australian landscape really transformed in in radical ways that it hasn't really bounced back as well. So it's, um, we saw 50% of our um, Gondwan and rainforest uh, species, um, rainforest burn in a a single bushfire season. And these are areas that don't usually burn. These are, you know, moss drenched areas that have been around since the time of dinosaurs. And we were seeing these, um, these forests burn for the first time in many places. So, Uh, it was really really confronting to witness that and at the same time we were also seeing um, the Great Barrier Reef was bleaching yet again Uh, and over just a handful of years we've seen 50% of the Great Barrier Reef actually die off and that doesn't include the most recent mass bleaching event from from 2022 so that's an underestimate in terms of where we are right now. So when you stop and you think about the reality of that, as Australians, we need to wake up to the reality that we are starting to see profound changes, not only in our natural ecosystems, but in our our human societies. And, and of course, many of you would know about the the East Coast floods of last year, 2022, where we saw entire towns effectively wiped off the map. Uh, My husband's family is from Lismore in northern New South Wales, Um, we live in northern New South Wales when I'm not in the city teaching and it was really, really confronting to see the first-hand effects of what happens when you start to get these extreme events that come one after the, after the other and they compound and they actually start to displace people and really start to, you start seeing the fabric of our communities come apart and so I guess to come back to the the initial question, Charles, it's really of understanding that we are facing an emergency. And it's not a word that I use lightly. As a scientist, got to be very careful with my phrasing. Um, And as a IPCC scientist, so someone that's worked at that UN level and sat at the table with representatives from all over the world, I realised, I guess maybe for the first time, that what was happening in Australia was being mirrored in so many different parts of the world. So in my chapter team, I had people from Colombia, from Pakistan, you know, from all over the world. And we were all reporting these major changes in our particular part of the planet. And so I guess for me, the real motivation for writing this book was to try and convey the scientific reality as clearly as possible to ordinary people so that they can engage in a conversation that feels inclusive, that doesn't feel so alienating with all the facts and figures. Um, although there are a lot of facts and figures in that book, I, I do take you by the hand and walk you through. So it's not, I hope it's not an inundation, but it is a, it's, it's um basically sort of t- takes you through my own processing of it and I guess that's something we'll probably talk about further in this conversation because I I fast realised that a book that was just a whole bunch of facts and figures was not going to do the job that I needed which was to try and to get people to connect emotionally to this topic so so maybe that's that answers that question
0: yeah no look thank you no it, it does and uh, um, I suppose the sort of just going back To that question, though, so just from the climate point of view, what do we need to do at the moment or not do?
2: Right. So we're in what is called the critical decade. So basically from now until 2030, we need to halve global emissions and basically get to net zero emissions um, by by the middle of the century. And and that is is an enormous task in terms of decarbonising the world's economies and starting to regenerate our natural places, Uh, it's enormous and and the challenge is there. But when you look at some of the reality of where we actually are under all the different um, climate model projections that are are assessed in the IPCC 6 assessment report, so the latest UN report, we we are on track to breach 1.5 degrees of global warming um, in the early 2030s under all emission scenarios. So we have to come to terms with, with what That actually means. And so right now, that doesn't mean that the Paris Agreement targets, we can throw them away and they're not useful. It means that we might have some overshoot and we need to come back down. So this is is really where we're at right now. In terms of what the IPCC says, it's really one of the key messages is how bad we let things get is still very much in our hands. So whether we see 1.5 degrees of warming, 2 degrees, 4 degrees, so on, That all depends on what we do within this next decade to turn things around. So it is an extraordinarily profound moment in human history. There's never been uh, higher consequences, to be honest, because everything is playing out in the background of our planetary home. And now that that is starting to be destabilised, it is starting to become intrusive. It's becoming part of the lived experience of not just here in Australia, although it's very clear what's happened here in Australia, but all over the world. You only have to watch the SBS news for 10 minutes to really get a sense of what is happening in the world. It's confronting, uh, it's real, and it is upon us. So I guess it's one of these things that it is extremely urgent. Um, Um, And basically we're at a point where we have to figure out how much we can save. And collectively, what we want to do about that. So the time for being a passive bystander is it has long passed. Like we're really in overtime here. We're really in borrowed time, and that's why I spend a lot of time uh, towards the end of the book talking about the intergenerational aspects of this and the ethics of that. So it is really the people alive today that are going to determine the future course of humanity, and that is a that's a it's a big thing to say, but it's actually true. So. Right. It's it's when people ask me what's the most important thing I can do right now to to address climate change and I often my my answer increasingly is becoming realize that you're living through the most profound moment in human history that will help starting there and then everything else can flow from there if you if you think that we have all this time well then you're not really in touch with the reality of the situation so my I guess key message is that we need to wake up right now and realize that there's no time to waste. Uh, but the good news is a lot can be done. I and mean, I'm sure we'll talk about that as well. But coming to that realisation of just how bad things are, I suppose, was part of the the, um, the process of writing this book, I think, for me, because as somebody who does, uh, you know, the frontline sort of scientific research, um, I'm in front of it day in, day out. And I guess um, the average person isn't aware of it because they're doing other things which is fine I mean it's normal that other people you know you're taking kids to school you're, you're living your life it's hard to take on this sort of planetary scale uh, crisis if you like it, it's 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 psychologically difficult it, it, it's mm-hmm. heavy it, it, it is burdensome so I guess I'm hoping to start a dialogue about about what what we can do at this particular moment. And I think as Australians, um, we have a lot to offer the global community at this moment as well.
0: Yes, yes, thank you. And uh, look, one of the things you say in in the book is, uh, this is, I'm I'm quoting, if we don't put the brakes on now, then really there's not much hope left. So that's a pretty strong statement. It is
2: a strong statement. We're not at that point yet. We're not at the point of no return in case anyone's on the line and wondering whether it is all too late. It is not all too late and it's not a helpful way of thinking about it. But the longer I I often like to use the medical analogy, like if you have, if say you got a a diagnosis of cancer and you knew if you got it early enough, you could actually stop it, you could do something, you could avoid the worst consequences, you would take the action. And so I think we need to think about climate change in a similar way of understanding that we have some some very serious symptoms and signs now that can't be avoided and some things are gone some things are actually beyond repair but there is still a lot we can save and there's certainly a lot we can do to stabilize what is still with us so I think if we think about it like that it becomes a bit of a different way of framing it because you wouldn't hesitate for a moment if a loved one had cancer wouldn't you throw everything you had at it to try and do what you can and I guess that's what the scientific community And many others are trying to do is to really try and ignite this social movement that we need to sort of turn this around, and that comes back to our cultural values, and that's something I I guess we'll talk about as well.
1: I am not in love, but I'm open to persuasion.
0: When you think of community. Uh, think of 3CR. When you think of
1: radio, think of 3CR. This is Joan Armour Trading asking you to support your community radio station, 3CR, the only alternative.
0: Join me Aya, cry with Ubuntu voices, Wednesday at 8.30 p.m. on 3CR. Ubuntu is a Zulu word meaning I am here because you are. Ubuntu celebrates the positive contribution African-Australians make to our communities in music, academia, the arts, and everything in between. Come with me on a journey. Ubuntu Voices free. every Wednesday at eight thirty PM. None of us are free. None of us, free. One of us is free. None of us are free.
1: You're listening to the Climate Action Show. Humanity's Moment is the name of the new book by Joelle Gerges, and here she is in conversation with psychologists for a safe climate.
2: I realised that I had to bring my full self to the page for this to be an honest book. I had to put away my kind of academic armoring and just be a human being and sit down and be real. How would you really want to relate to someone and talk to them about what's going on? And from that place, the book flowed. It really did flow from that place, but it was is really when I, I guess I gave myself the permission, because I must say it's quite taboo in science to to talk about um, emotional um, topics and, and emotional responses. We're meant to be very objective and rational, but my feeling is that you can be objective and rational and, and and professional, but still be a human being. So I think it's an outdated notion, and I would like to see that change because I think the culture of science. Um, We have some very sensitive and and, and brilliant minds in our field and and, and deep thinkers and feelers, and I think we just don't often talk about that, at least not in public. We can talk about it when we're having a tea break at a conference and we will talk about things sort of off the record, but you won't hear many scientists talk about how they really feel about it. But I thought, well, look, I'm going to write about how I feel about it because I feel like it might help give other people permission to, to actually acknowledge that this is really hard,
1: mm, mm. this is
2: actually really difficult. But you know, we don't stay in that place of feeling like everything's really difficult. But you have to start from a real authentic place. Otherwise, you're really just skirting around the edges. And as we know, you know, you, you can never really deal with something unless you go straight through the heartland of it. So, mm, you know, yeah. that, that's 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 just reality.
0: By sharing with other people some of your deep feelings about the situation, it really allows allows the readers maybe, you know, hold their own uh, feelings or talk about those sort of feelings to to other people.
2: Yeah, I guess that was part of what I really wanted to do is I wanted the reader to find themselves in the pages and be able to relate to me as the narrator and find a part of themselves in there because it's part of, I guess, the, our collective lived experience and and I'm just putting words to things that many people feel. I had emails from scientific colleagues emailing me saying thank you. When I read your piece on XYZ um, that really helped me realise that I also felt that way. So I think unless you're brave enough to actually put that on the table and it is a vulnerability and it's something that I was quite terrified to be to be honest when this book came out I was I was Had a bit of a vulnerability overload moment where I was like, oh, my God, I have just put out all this really personal stuff into the public. I can't take that back. But I realised that the stakes are so high. And if that is going to help someone in, in some way to connect, then I think it's worthwhile. So I, yeah. I feel like in some ways I, it's a bit of a personal sacrifice because I'm, I'm actually a really private person. I'm a really introverted person. I'm a nerd, right? I'm a, sci- I'm a scientist. I, I spend a lot of time like by myself or looking at numbers and things like that. So I'm, it's not a natural um, thing for, for someone like me to do. So to write this book was actually a really big deal. And as I also share in the book, um, I also struggle with depression for a range of other sort of personal um, reasons, and so I guess I that 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 also informs the way I deal with this issue because I'm a human being. I'm not just a scientist. I I, I bring my own personal history, and so part of what I've had to, to come to terms with is how do you maintain faith in in humanity when sometimes things are so grim, and 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 you feel like you know you when you see the atrocities and you see the mindless destruction, and just how insane things can feel sometimes it's really hard to 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 not get depressed mm. but then well, someone said to me well that's actually a really rational response to a really insane kind of irrational situation so it made it sort of and I hope that's helpful for people to hear because it's a natural thing to feel angry or really sad or really despairing or you know immense rage even around this mm. stuff
0: Mm. Um, yeah. And
2: it's disingenuous to pretend like those those emotions don't exist.
0: No, absolutely. And, I'm, and, I'm, and I guess you you know this is exactly what we try to do in psychology for a safe climate to sort of really validate people's yeah. feelings that are you know that are that are are genuine and 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 very appropriate if you like to the situation. And yeah. and perhaps I could just read. Uh, a couple of your your entries from your diary, which you which you have in the book, which are sort of very revealing of just how how sort of terrible you felt at times oh. um, uh, One was about despair. something inside me feels like it has snapped that some essential thread of hope has failed, the knowing that sometimes things can't be saved that the planet is dying, that we couldn't get it together in time to save the irreplaceable.
2: Yeah, so that was a dark day, that one. That was a dark day. But I guess sometimes I feel that way. And and I guess there's a tr- there is an element of truth to some things are beyond repair to, to some degrees so I'm currently working on a, a podcast uh, which is looking at um sort of highlights of the IPCC report and in, in one of those episodes we talked to a coral reef scientist and she's basically was telling us how this this coral reef site that she had been working on for 20 years is now effectively dead and, and and basically lost to Humanity forever because those temperatures will not come back down in you know in any reasonable time frame and and I think it's one of those things where we have to acknowledge that there are going to be really serious losses. I mean, how do you come to terms with the loss of an entire component of our biosphere? And here in Australia, the, the Great Barrier Reef is the largest living organism on the planet, and half of it's dead,
1: yeah. right?
2: So that that's actually quite a profound thing to come to terms with. And, and I think as Australians... Um, You know, David Attenborough often writes about Australia because we're such an extraordinary place. Like, you know, um, Australia has more unique plants and animals than anywhere else on the planet. So even places like Brazil or Madagascar or Papua New Guinea, all these exotic places you might think, Australia is number one when it comes to all of these, you know, unique animals and plants that we have. We're extraordinary. And so we, we are caretakers and custodians of this incredible part of the planet. And so for me as well, I feel like this book is, is is told by an Australian scientist. We often hear about climate change told by many American men, let's be honest. That's fine. But there aren't a lot of diversity of the voices. So I really wanted to bring the Australian perspective of what it felt like, for instance, to be you know, how when you walk through the Australian bush, it's just so alive and it can be deafening with all of the life sometimes. And and when I was um, on my honeymoon in Japan and I write about this and going to a Japanese forest and doing a big sort of pilgrimage walk and just the whole landscape's devoid of life, not even seeing the only life we saw was well, it was roadkill, it wasn't even life, there was nothing there. And I think that that contrast between the thriving diversity we have in a country like Australia and other places where we just don't have that anymore, where it's been so decimated, I think we have a unique perspective as Australians and having the longest Indigenous culture, continuous culture in the world, I mean, it, it, I, I personally feel we, we we have a really unique role to play in terms of how we frame this as this moment for us to, to reclaim our stewardship of the planet. And this is something that is known to Indigenous people all over the world. This is nothing new. We have just gone crazy with consumerism. We've lost the way. We've lost our connection um, to nature, to each other, to what really matters, and we've become these sort of mindless consumers. And we need to snap out of it. We need to realise that, hang on, we need to course correct. The planet is actually, the ice sheets are melting and we're destroying the world's rainforests and things are actually starting to falter now. And I guess as a scientist, working at that UN level, I was able to see like all the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle and realise this is not just happening in Australia, it's happening everywhere. And so what are we going to do? And that's why I called this book Humanity's Moment because it is our moment to step up and to reclaim our humanity as well. There was a chapter I found particularly kind of disturbing to write it was really made me cry a lot was the displacement of people from their from rising sea levels, particularly the really rich cultures of the Pacific Islands. And if any of you have been to the Pacific Islands, I mean they're just the most gorgeous places with deep rich roots into their culture and connection to the ocean and these people are now being displaced from those lands, their ancestral lands and it, it's like a severing. It, 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 even if you re, re rehome them, there's a, there's a cultural connection that gets lost and I think it's, are we all good with that? I guess it was just that moment where I was just thinking like collectively that that's a, that's a cultural values thing. Like are we all okay with that? And so that's where I feel like just reconnecting with what it is to be human and to be humane I think is really important. So, you know, we can talk about climate science and we can talk about all the facts and figures, but ultimately it boils down to the people and the places that we love. And that's what it, how it comes to me now. It really just comes down to the things that we care about. So we don't have to get too stuck in all of the conversations about emissions and drawdown. And we can have those conversations. They're fine, but not everyone's going to be able to participate in those conversations. But the conversations we, the vast majority of us mere mortals can really connect with are things like our cultural values, things like removing or creating the social licence for something to go ahead or not. So we can either create or remove the social licence for the continued exploitation of fossil fuels in this country. So right now we do have a change of government and it is a really fantastic thing, but there is still over 100 different gas, um, oil and coal projects on the table. So are we going to continue to ha- so what are we going to do about it, guys? Like this is this is our moment, right? So this is our moment as Australians to say on behalf of the planet, we actually, because we are the largest fossil fuel exporter in the world, um, what are we going to do about that? So mm. I, I think it's that's why it, it is this profound moment because it it it's it's so consequential and it reverberates out for millennia. So mm. it is a, a really critical moment.
0: Could just come back a bit more to sort of say the importance of talking about climate feelings, which is obviously something we do and something you you sort of talk about in the book about having the sort of tough conversations, Mm. and how important that is going to be, uh, not just for us as individuals, but really, in a sense, for the whole culture, to be able to have the space to Mm. be able to actually hold the sort of painful feelings that we're in at the moment.
2: Yeah, look, I I think, you know, the conversation is long overdue. And I think many of us feel it, we feel it in our private places and our private spaces. But I think collectively, we need to be coming together to talk about this, because it is a reality. So I think most Australians now know that climate change is is real, it's being caused by human activity. And it's going to continue to escalate the more carbon we put into the atmosphere. These are all just facts, right? So so we do need to talk about what it is to, to be living through this profound, tumultuous you know, era in human history and how we are going to cho- choose to show up in that moment. And so that's going to bring up a whole range of different feelings. Like for me personally... Um, you know as I mentioned I live in northern New South Wales and I often go walk the the, the, the beaches there and increasingly after these storm events you can just see the the, the coastline eroding and eroding and eroding and eroding you know you can just see the creep of it all or going to rainforest where I love and then seeing all the brown tinges where the fire stopped and realizing okay those patches aren't going to grow back we still have these so you know, many of us, and I'm sure all of you probably have your own sort of unique places that really resonate with you when you think about where is it that you feel that the world is changing. It might be in your local park or whatever it may be, but we all have our own sort of personal connection to, to that. And I suppose for me, um, I guess as a writer, I, I feel the way I make sense of the world is to, is to try and put it into words and to get it on paper um, and, and then try and talk to other sensitive and thoughtful people who are deep thinkers and realising that there are people like that out there who really care about these things. Not everybody wants to talk about inane celebrity chefs and whatever. That's all fine. We all need our outlets. I'm not I'm not judging. All I'm saying is that we are in a really, we are in an emergency situation that does require emergency action. So I think it's just about if, if, if someone like me can't be real about about it, and I'm in front of it every day. Then how can I expect other people to really understand? And so mm-hmm. that's why I, that's why I felt I had to be really honest in this book. And and that that's really that's how it came to be. And in the moment that I was honest, it really flowed because I feel like I'm just being human, and that's that's a collective, universal feeling. I I'm just trying to put some words around those feelings so that other people can then have their words around those feelings and we can have a conversation. So I'm hoping this just starts conversations. Like this is not the, this is a starting point. This is not the be all and end all. This is, I hope, helps ignite conversations in your own communities and groups and in your own Hmm. self around how you feel because it is a really profound moment. You know, people think about these moments in history like the 1960s these revolutionary times and think you know wow that seemed amazing but you know we're going to look back at the 2020s and say well where were you where were mm-hmm. you in the 2020s what did you do how did you show up and particularly if you have children as well and i really feel like that is something you want to be proud of what you did at this moment and i think We need better stories, and and so in the last part of the book, I was really enjoyed reading writers like Rebecca Solnit. Some of you might know the U.S. writer Rebecca Solnit. She's amazing. She's so inspiring, and she she wrote a really good book called Hope in the Dark, um, which was just profound. And she's got a new anthology coming out, which I've contributed a a little essay to, which is called Not Too Late. Some of you might really enjoy it. it. It's it's got collected. It's a it's a collection of essays from all over the world which is basically telling this story, which it is is not too late. So I put forward the scientific case, so that's my contribution, but it has other things. So if you haven't read Rebecca's work, please track it down because she's very wise and it makes me also realise that there's so many good people out there thinking about this in so many different ways. And maybe it was a revelation to me as a scientist because I'm often reading scientific journals and things. I don't have a lot of time to read other material as much as I would like. but. The fact is, is that we all have something to contribute and that's what I think is the beauty of this movement is that it isn't going to be a bunch of nerdy scientists that lead the social movement. It's going to be people that are creating, I guess, our cultural change and that can come from so many different places and I guess we'll probably talk about that later as well. But okay. there's really yeah. there's really room for everyone in this movement. It's not just one size fits all. 3
1: to the Climate Action Show. Humanity's Moment is the name of the new book by Joelle Gerges, and here she is in conversation with psychologists for a safe climate.
0: Just briefly, self-care is something so important, and burnout, and I know that you talk about that Mm. in your your book as something really, really important. And and obviously a lot of your self-care is Mm. very much tied up with the natural environment and how important that is.
2: Yeah, really it is. I mean, for me, the connection to the natural world, whether it be going for a walk on the beach or swimming in the ocean or going for a bush walk or just being outside in a local park or anything like that is just a reminder that you are a part of the natural world and there is a life force that sustains us all and when you tap into that, it does recharge you. And it also reminds you of part of the reason um, so much that there is so much worth saving. Mm. There's still so much beauty out there and I think sometimes when you're around you know really difficult material all the time you can just see the ugliness of everything and I think nature is a really beautiful antidote to that where you can go and just be um, I, I guess just have your breath taken away by you know a magnificent coastline or whatever it might be that really kind of restores something in you and so for me Obviously, as, a, as you know, I guess as a scientist, I'm really connected to the natural world and, and the way it works. Um, but it's also people and, and finding solace in others and finding other sensitive souls who have empathy and have shared um, interests and um, an ability to, to be sensitive when you are feeling raw uh, and so, you know, if you are feeling really raw, it's probably not the time to to go out and, you know, t- talk to a bunch of climate sceptics, for instance, for me, um, no. because th- yeah. that's not a helpful conversation at the best of times, but it's particularly right. not when you're feeling vulnerable. It's not, not great. But I suppose it's just about pacing yourself and realising you're in it for the long haul. And there's some days where it feels so overwhelming and that's okay, then you drop it, leave it, go do something, go to an art gallery go for a swim do whatever it is that you do to ground yourself do some yoga whatever it is that connects you back into the fact connecting you back to the fact you're a human in a body because ultimately we're just animals on this planet we're all just doing our best from day to day um i think it's important to just ground yourself and try and enjoy those beautiful things that are still there and like i said as australians you don't have to look too far you know you wake up early, you hear the dawn choruses, kookaburras, there's all sorts of things like this. We have so many things to remind us that we're part of an ecosystem and part of this very rich life force that sustains the whole planet. And we have a beautiful part of it here in Australia. So I think there are really good ways to do that. But burnout is a very, very real thing. And, you know, there are times where the work will require a lot of you. So, for instance, with IPCC, I was working around the clock. I start the book at 5:15 a.m. on a Saturday that I had an IPCC meeting and we're I'm getting up because I'm the only Australian representative on on that chapter and I have to be there because I'm re- representing all of my people back at home so I have to I have to be there right so mm. so that's not the time to like chill out and go and take a break right so you got to pick your moments of when it's it's time to do the work and when it's time to rest and just like everything in nature everything ebbs and flows
1: Mm-hmm. And, and your
2: energy ebbs and flows and just knowing that I think is really important and learning to tune into those cycles of your your productive times, your not-so-productive times, but also the t- stage of your life as well. You mm-hmm. know, that changes I've been finding as I'm getting into my sort of middle years that, you know, I've got to be prote- really protective of my energy sometimes and I've got to learn the word no. I get mm-hmm. asked on on a daily basis to do all sorts of stuff, but I'm only choosing to say yes to the things where I feel that ignite my interest or i really want to connect with a particular group of people or so things like that i think can help you with burnout because you only have a finite i guess a finite little jar of energy or whatever you want to call it and you need to doll it out really carefully because it it, 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 it's a it's a precious resource Mm. (laughs) i hope that helps yeah
0: you know that's really helpful. No, thank you. Thank you for sharing how, how you deal with self, your self-care, which is, again, something we, we try and help people with. But
2: And I guess for me, you know, these last few years have been just such a difficult time for everybody. You know, we, we've dealt with COVID. We've dealt with um, all sorts of extreme weather events. Uh, for me, I dealt with IPCC on top of all of that. And I guess through it all, I saw a lot of really interesting things. So for instance, when our Um, During the Black Summer bushfires and our precious places were on fire, you know, we had volunteer firefighters going out to protect our collective places that we love. When you think about the healthcare workers on the front line of the COVID crisis, they're working around the clock to try and protect our communities. And then there I was part of an IPCC community, volunteers, we're all volunteers working, you know, for three and a half years for free on top of our day jobs. So you can't tell me that there isn't goodness in humanity. You only have to look around you to realise that. And also with the East Coast floods, how when the SES didn't turn up, neighbours got in their kayaks and their dinghies and they turned up and they literally saved hundreds of people. Um, I had family members that did that, even though they were flooded out of their own house, they got in a kayak and they went and got everybody else that they could get from their street. And, And I think when it comes back down to it, you know, it's so easy to get so polarised in your thinking that everybody, or no one cares about this or people are terrible or, you know, that kind of black and white thinking. And, and I'm I'm guilty of it too. But the reality is, is you know, people can be really awful but they can also be magnificent at the same time, right? Yes, so yes. I think if we just sort of think about how we want to show up in that moment, we want to be that person that restores someone else's faith in humanity. We don't want to be one of those people that is just the the person that is making everybody sort of tear their hair out, right? So we, we know what that person feels like and that person has their own issues and, okay, but you can only control you, right? So you can only take control of what you, how you want to show up in the moment and how, and what kind of legacy you want to leave. Do you want to be part of the people who actually tried their very best with whatever they had to do what you could or do you just want to be someone that becomes a sort of passive, disconnected, depressed, jaded, bitter And I swing between the two of them, to be honest. I'm not trying to say for a moment that I always have this sorted. That's why I'm being really honest about this. So please, you know, if you're interested in what I'm saying, read this book, because there's a lot of my own struggle with this. Like there are times where I feel like, oh, my God, humanity is it seems doomed. And other times where I see the very best in humanity and I think, no, hang on a sec. We've also got a history of this. And I also write about the, the, the whole, um, you know, the social movements in, in human history of civil rights and gender equality and all these things that they're not a done deal. They're a constant battle. This, this This struggle for, this tug of war for social justice is ongoing and climate change is the latest thing in this long continuum of human history. And if you can stop and think about this moment like that, it changes everything. And that's why I was trying to say, coming back to the very, very first point I made, the most powerful thing you can do right now is realise you are living through a historic moment, the most historic moment that this planet is ever going to face. And you are part of this extraordinary generation that can leave a legacy. And how amazing is that? Yes, it's also a huge burden, totally, okay? It's not going to be easy. It's hard, but it's totally worthwhile. And it provides us with immense meaning if you stop and you think about the things that are worth doing in life. I think this is one of those things. Take mm. a day off, by all means. Like, if you need to take a breather, take a breather. But do what you can where you can. And I guess mm. that is, is is really where I would, that's probably how I would sum it up. Yeah,
0: Yeah. no, thanks very much. I mean, it really is towards the end of the book, there was a, a lot of sort of hopeful messages like that, where you talk about the forces for good and uh, social movements and social tipping points, which... Oh. Are, which are, are, are really really important, and uh, I can see your connection with the sort of Rebecca Solnit and the the, the sort of light that just she brings to situations.
2: She's amazing, and for me as a scientist to read her work to, to to really connect up with other people who are thinking about these things, it was a revelation to me. And, and I guess that's that it, it's a it's just so good to know that that a lot of deep thinkers thinking about this. So we just need to tell better stories about how we want to vision this future world and bring it into reality. And and that's really it. So yes, it's hard, but let's get over that bit. Let's get over to, let's start building the better world that we want. And I think um, that's a meaningful thing to do, but you're not alone. And and I think for me, even it it was so nice to be able to have the opportunity to read writers like Rebecca um, and, and it really motivated me because it made me feel like somehow the, the the burden lifted a little bit from my own shoulders. Where I realized, like, I'm just one person in all of the people that want to do something. I'm just lending my voice and my mm. my my life force to it at this moment. Yes.
0: Well, look, thank thank you very much. Look, I I'm, I am mean, I think we I guess we can continue with the conversation with the questions, but we're sure. I think we're, we're at time now probably to to, to go in, in, in a few minutes uh, to, to have questions. So if people could uh, place uh, the questions in chat. And uh, But now just to finish off this segment, Joelle very kindly has agreed to read um, an excerpt from her book.
2: Yeah. It's just a couple of paragraphs so I just wanted to leave you with, something where, you know, I got to with my writing. Um, so I hope you enjoy it. The sense that nothing can or ever will change is one of the hallmarks of depression. As Rebecca Solnit puts it, the despair felt like a stall, a becoming, a running aground. Believing that things will ever get better is still something I grapple with when things get really bad. Although I cycle through this enough times to know that these feelings will eventually pass, when I'm in the grip of darkness, I honestly don't believe it ever will. I'm slowly learning that I need to be patient and remember that eventually, the wind will pick up and catch my sails once more. I've also discovered that I have people in my life who are willing to wade in and give me a nudge until the stick of the sand beneath me gives way and I'm back in open water. But when I boil it all down, what gives me hope comes down to this. There is still so much goodness in humanity. Even if you can't see it around you or have stopped believing that it even exists, there is still something good in all of us. When I'm really down, I have to trust that eventually, When the darkness has finally dissipated, I will be able to see again. Until then, I need to hold on and be guided by the light in others. When I allow myself to shelter in their compassion and care, it stills my own flickering light until eventually it starts to steady itself and glow a little brighter.
0: Is drinking costing you more than money? Alcoholics Anonymous provides a free and anonymous recovery service to anyone who wants to call it quits. Join millions of other alcoholics worldwide and take your first brave steps towards a new beginning. There are thousands of AA meetings happening every week across Australia. If you'd like to find your closest meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous or have any questions regarding this tried and tested treatment for alcoholism, call 1300 a a That's 1300 22 22 22. Or visit aa.org.au. This community service announcement is sponsored by Alcoholics Anonymous. You're
1: listening to the Climate Action Show. Humanity's Moment is the name of the new book by Joelle Gurgis, and here she is in conversation with psychologists for a safe climate.
2: I think writing this book is, as I've said to people close to me, I think it's the most important book I'll ever write, and I think I changed as a person as a result of writing it. I think it made me, I think in the past I used to compartmentalise my work from my personal life. But then all of a sudden I realised that um, that was just a way of sort of dissociating from the material. But when it started to become really intrusive, like when I had family displaced from floods, flooding in in Lismore or also got evacuated by fires um, and seeing my own neighbourhood really transform from extreme weather, I really realised that this is the moment And so for me, what can I do as a scientist? Do I publish another paper, research paper? Yes, I can do that. But it felt like the most important thing I could do was just distill everything I've learned over the last 25 years of my sort of research career and and time teaching and all that sort of stuff and and try and just pass it on in a hope that it lands with the people that need to hear it. it. It ignites a conversation and it helps in some way. So, yeah, it really did change me because it made, you know, how I was saying before, realize that you're living through the most important moment in human history it made me think about what am I going to do in this important moment in human history turns out that I'm a writer as well as a scientist so one of my superpowers is communicating so I am communicating in the hope that I can help spark conversations for other people to have more conversations and do whatever do all the things that you can do Uh, I'm trying to bring my skills to to the table to help help but um, yeah, so I guess it made me really sort of realise that the most meaningful and powerful thing I can do right now is communicate directly to the public. I i am getting less um, enthusiastic about sort of teaching um, university students. Sorry, any university students on the line. Um, it, it's fine. I've done that for many, 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 many years, but I just feel like I want to talk directly to people who really want to listen to what I have to say and can, and can action it because... Um, I'm literally coming off the front line to say, hey, guys, we need your help. As far as I understand, all the
1: IPCC, RCPs incorporate considerable or even vast drawdown with technologies
0: we don't have yet. Um, Even 1.5 is not safe, let alone two degrees. I recall BZE saying 10 years ago that we'll need to build the reverse of the biggest industry mankind has ever built. petrochemical industry and i see no sign of that happening
2: yeah that's an astute comment so thank you for that yes it's true that all the ipcc scenarios do involve some level of drawdown in in their scenarios Uh, and obviously that's, you know, that, that, that's a big deal. And that's also why people are talking about, you know, the nature-based solutions to try and sequester carbon in, you know, whether it be in the ocean or through land-based ecosystems, wetlands, the restoration of natural places that do soak up um, those sorts of emissions. But, you know, land emissions are just 30%. Obviously, the industrial emissions are about 70% of the emissions that we need to, um, to draw down, as you say it's a huge problem and this is why you know the ipcc are saying that you know we really need to turn the tap off emissions so and then we need to mop up okay so we need to turn the tap off which is the whole thing around decarbonization um, and you're right 1.5 degrees for instance sees 90 percent of coral reef ecosystems um, die off and I would argue that if I was a Pacific island, I wouldn't say that's a safe level of climate change. With 1.5 degrees of global warming, that's displacing a lot of people. That's displacing, you know, tens of millions of people from low-lying areas. So I agree, um, but you've got to understand that the science um, is really complex. It's very, very challenging to parameterize some of these um, elements in these these imperfect systems, these models. Um, but they're the best tools that we have. So I guess you see it more as a guide in terms of, you know, it, it's very difficult. They're, they're kind of like a um, an indication of the projection of what we can expect from the different pathways, from low emissions, medium emissions to high emissions. So they are different pathways. And I do actually talk about all of those in my book. So, again, if you want serious detail, you can go in there. Um, but I agree with your, your general point, which is it's true. It's true that, you know, we have not included all the different elements of, uh, you know, the climate system in our climate models. Um, it's, it's just, it's it's like trying to um, write an equation for how, you know, every component of the human body, how that works. As you can imagine, it's a really difficult thing. The Earth system is extraordinarily complex. So it's really hard. Um, but I guess the other point is that, you know, some of the technologies we need to draw down, um, you know, they, 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 they don't exist. And I guess this is part of the problem. So I guess as a scientist, I would like to just say, so let's just stop emitting carbon until we know how to sort this out. So, you know, there are natural systems that, as I said, sequester carbon, but they operate on geologic time scales. so we don't really have that sort of time. So we can do other things, which is turn off the tap and then nature-based solutions will help with some of those emissions. But, yeah, it's true, 100%. It, like I said, it's going to get worse before it gets better. Yeah, I guess it's like how you show up in the moment and 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 do you choose to be a bridge between the different communities or do you choose to be someone who's polarising and and stopping that healing and unity that we need? So I guess it's like one of those eternal questions, which is we're always going to have, people in our communities that want to undermine and want to be divisive unfortunately that's a human condition you guys know a lot more about the human condition than me so I'm not going to tell you guys anything you don't know but I suppose it's just like as a human being I would just choose to show up as someone that is willing to be a bridge rather than to to be kind of detonating any kind of opportunity for for knitting together and and healing and coming together because that's what this humanity moment is all about can we reclaim our humanity and join up because we have immense capacity to do that and when we do that we change the world there's no doubt about it the history's full of it that's that's what I loved about this book in the end which brought me out of my depression as I finished writing it is that I realized that actually everything we need to do this actually exists right now except for some of the drawdown which I'm not going to talk about right now but it's in terms of the social movement it all is there so we can do this is what I want to say and you know it's our moment to think about how we show up. Thank
1: you to Carol Ride and Psychologists for a Safe Climate for sending me this talk about humanity's moment. They conduct empathy cafes for all of us who find the climate grief, confusion, despair and burnout too much to bear alone. Check out their website at Psychologists for a Safe Climate. And you'll find several events, talks, but also these empathy cafes, which you might find really helpful. Thank you to climate scientist and writer Joel Gurgis, to Charles Lefebvre and Christy Wilson for exploring the book by Joelle called Humanity's Moment. My name is Vivian Langford. Goodbye and good luck.
0: This is coal. Don't be afraid. Don't be
1: scared. It's coal. It's coal. It's coal. Tune in every Monday at 5pm to hear the Climate Action Radio Show. Hi, I'm Claire O'Rourke and I'd like to tell you about my new book, Together We Can. It brings together stories of everyday Australians doing amazing things to give our planet a future. The book has stories from all over the country, from Kingaroy to Kangaroo Island Gloucester to Gadigal country, from Hobart to the Hunter and on Nam too. People are building community connections, learning from First Nations leaders, inventing new technologies, starting transformational businesses and not-for-profits too. Hearing these stories convinced me that we are in a moment where we can achieve a faster and fairer transformation of our economy and society that has really great potential to deliver a cleaner, healthier and better future for all of us. Together We Can is by me, Claire O'Rock. Find it in all good bookstores or at your favourite online bookseller.
0: Are you a 3CR subscriber?
1: We really need our listeners to subscribe to the station. It helps us remain financially independent and is an important part of our community governance.
0: It's just $40 concession. $80 waged, $150 for a band or organization, and $300 solidarity. Become a 3CR subscriber today. 3CR Radical Radio.